0: Hello again, witches, seekers, and friends, and welcome to the Fat Feminist Witch Podcast, the show where we do a little ranting, raving, and wand waving. I'm your host, Paige Vanderbeck, and together we're going to explore magic and spirituality, social justice, the psychic realm, and truly modern witchcraft. Hello, my spooky witchy friends, and welcome to October, which is the entire month of Halloween. <laughs> Halloween's not a day. It's a whole month. Uh, I'm going pretty hard, so I've stocked up on all things pumpkin spice, including coffee cream, um, little wax for a wax warmer. Like, I don't have any other scented wax. It's just pumpkin spice. Um, I made my own pumpkin candle, so I got essential oils of cinnamon, nutmeg, allspice, ginger, and, um, and cardamom. And I also got some vanilla and coffee fragrance oils, but mixing them into candles, baths, body sprays, like, you know, whatever. (laughs) I've been burning those every morning with my pumpkin spice coffee as I sit at my, you know, at my little table and have my breakfast, which is usually pumpkin spice Cheerios or a pumpkin spice muffin. (laughs) And, you know, do my morning journaling and my, my tarot reading and stuff. Uh, I also bought myself like a, a, one of those little modern casual witch hats that are kind of knit, so comfortable. And I wear it pretty much every time I leave the house now, I'm really excited, especially because the other day, um, we've reached that point. There's not a lot of leaves on the ground, right? There's just some small leaves. They're bright yellow. They're always the first ones to fall. But after the rain, you can really smell that there are leaves on the ground. You know, they, the moisture of the, the rain or the morning dew, it just broadcasts that beautiful smell of fallen leaves all over the place. And I just smelled it the other day and it was like, it's fall. So I'm <laughs> I, I'm kind of in my element here. Um, pretty excited about it. Mm. I'm also going pretty hard on the apples. I'm adding apples to everything, like my pancakes, my sandwiches. Uh, I made, you know, sauteed pork loin and apples and etc. So, if I'm not even eating pumpkin spice, I'm essentially eating cinnamon-covered apples. I'm so into this season. So I am technically a bit of a Halloween-loving white girl cliche, but whatever. I can't keep my love of this season under wraps. I love living somewhere with four seasons. I love seeing the changes as we move through them. And you know, I even love experiencing all the weather. Icy cold is certainly far from my favorite, but I can come up with a long list of things that I also love about winter. So I am a bit of a seasonal nerd, I guess you could say. I I refuse, (laughs) I refuse to apologize for it. So one of my favorite, well, my favorite thing about fall, especially is Halloween. Halloween as a kid you could tell Halloween was our family's favorite holiday. Like my mom went all out for every holiday. She was she was just the holiday queen. Um but Halloween was our favorite. You know, the memories I have of decorating the house, of carving pumpkins, of making costumes, trick-or-treating, watching Halloween specials on TV, like the great pumpkin and the Halloween tree. Those are some of the best memories I have, and I have so many of them because every year Halloween was exciting and memorable and fun. I love to look back on the Halloween parties that they threw with their friends how decorated they were, all the amazing fun Halloween decorations. And that's really easy to bring up in my memory because you can still get like pretty much the exact same decorations they got in the mid 90s. It's really wild. The nostalgic element of Halloween is not just something that, that I feel, it's, it's the whole holiday. The holiday is boiling over with nostalgia. A lot like Christmas, you know? There are traditions, there are certain costumes and characters, stories, greetings and expressions, and even really particular types of candy that are, you know, they're repeated and they're brought out from the vault every Halloween, and have been since the 1880s here in North America. Though Halloween's deepest roots bring us back to like, you know, pre-Christian Britain, the Druids and etc., Scotland and Ireland especially, um, most of the traditions that we celebrate at Halloween time are completely homegrown, and some of our most deeply felt Halloween traditions have only existed since the 1950s. Our North American version of Halloween, which is exactly what I'm obsessed with, right, This is not a worldwide celebration, which is wild because we're so inspired. Our Halloween is so inspired by death rituals and festivals and beliefs all over the world. And we have been working little bits of these things into our holiday forever. It really is a a folk holiday. And the individual ways it's celebrated in different corners of North America reflect the people who live there and the way they see frivolity and even mortality. As a kid, the most important element of Halloween was, of course, the trick-or-treating. Ah, oh, it's the best. All of the hours decorating the house, sticking your hands in pumpkin goo, which I actually thought was fun, making your costume, um, thinking up ideas for your for your entire persona, right? It wasn't just a costume. You were, you were, it was a persona. And all those hours of wearing really scratchy face paint, ugh, gross. But all that stuff led up to the big score, which was the trick-or-treat. All the kids in the neighborhood would spill out of their homes at dusk, decked in different costumes of monsters and magical creatures or superheroes, historical figures, uh, characters from their favorite stories and movies and TV. And they all had little buckets or bags. If you were me, it was a pillowcase for sure. And I always made sure I picked the right pillowcase to match my costume (laughs) or my favorite one, which was usually one with a big rainbow on it left over from the 70s. to go door-to-door. You know, you went door-to-door, and you screamed out, or TREAT, and you get rewarded with a little handful of candy or chocolate. And it was so much fun. You know, fancy houses gave out full chocolate bars, or even cans of pop. That's how you knew the people there were rich. But even the house that just gave out, like, you know, the cheap chalky candy, but put a pumpkin out and turned on the porch light, was flooded with a wave of gratitude, you know, as we all leapt off the porch on our way to the next house. Almost as exciting was going home with a humongous bag of candy and getting to sit down and haggle and barter with my little brother after our parents checked the candy for opening open packaging that could be a sign of poison or razor blades or narcotics <laughs> that had menacingly be at, been added to the candy um, which was all an urban legend by the way i'm going to talk about that a little later that was that was so much fun, you know. I remember just kind of sitting down and and letting the tiredness wash over me as I picked through all the colorful candy wrappers. Um, now I'm not the kind of kid that pulls pranks, and I would sooner set my own big bag of candy on fire than destroy someone's jack o' lantern. That is a sacred thing for me. But the activity was called trick or treat for a reason, and for other kids who did like to pull pranks or who had the creativity to pull pranks even. This was a time when they could go out and, you know, let that aspect of their personality really shine. The actual practice of going door to door for treats and maybe causing just a little bit of mischief actually does date back to Scotland and Ireland. It's an activity just like Christmas caroling, which is also something that has been very popular in the British Isles. Since the Middle Ages in Britain, there has been this practice for certain holidays going door to door and singing or performing a party trick, um, you know, as some kind of exchange for food or for hospitality, for laughs, for fun. It was a time when the entire community went out and did this, or was at home making treats to share. It was done for all sorts of different holidays, for a lot of different reasons in a lot of different ways. But dressing up specifically as frightening or spooky things was meant to appease and and even blend in with magical creatures and entities during liminal times, you know, that, that time when the veil between the worlds is thin, like the beginning of winter, which was the last harvest and the end of the light time of the year, it was right before the beginning of the dark. This practice was called souling and later guising, you know, because of the disguises people would wear. Guising and Halloween came together officially in the 16th century in Scotland, as far as we know. Complete with tongue-in-cheek threats to make mischief if they don't get the good treats. Though there was rarely any actual violence or property damage done. It it wasn't a big deal, right? Um, But often the kids or the revelers, because this wasn't just a, a thing that kids did at first, they would have a joke or a song or like a scene from a play rehearsed. The British Isles, of course, are also where fairy stories originated, and many of these performances featured tales of mischievous fairies and pixies who needed to appe- be appeased with treats, which really solidified Halloween's kind of troublemaker vibe. That's, that's exactly why mischief is, <laughs> is so common at Halloween. It's a fairy thing. I told you guys fairies were scary. So the activity of, of guising came to Canada uh, and the U.S. with colonization, of course, But it didn't start right away. When large numbers of people from Ireland were displaced by the potato famine, Halloween really started to take off here in North America. The very earliest record of any children on this continent guising in the Scottish or Irish tradition is 1911 in, get this, Kingston, Ontario, Canada. Absolutely amazing. Canadians were the first trick-or-treaters. And three provinces away, In 1927, the phrase, trick or treat, was first recorded in Blackie, Alberta, which is right outside of Calgary. Yeah, that's right. Canadian kids are the pioneers of tricks and treats. That is our thing. It is a true Canadian invention. (laughs) So the first American trick or treaters are recorded in 1932, though there was some, some guising recorded earlier than that in Chicago, which is also not very far from here. Uh, and where we also have quite a few immigrants, specifically from the British Isles. When I was in high school, I learned that Halloween was a mostly North American thing. And I learned this from a few different European exchange students who all got to experience trick-or-treating for the very first time at like 14, 15 and even one at 16. And when You know, people were like, aren't you guys a little old? And we told them that it was their very first Halloween trick-or-treating. People got so excited to be a part of it. I always thought that was really cute. Even in England, Ireland, and Scotland, where most of our ancient Halloween roots um, and Samhain come from, trick-or-treating wasn't really something kids did on Halloween. And if they did, they had their own greetings. You know, they had their, their, their own things to say at the door. I'm excited to learn that the practice has gotten more commonplace all around the British Isles, and um, our lovely Canadian Halloween threat has even picked up in popularity in the last 20 years, which I thought was very, very cool. It reminds me a little of how holidays change. You know what I mean? St. Patrick's Day, the whole kiss me, I'm Irish, lots of drinking green and glitter, None of that was really uh, an Irish people in Ireland creation. That was that was Irish people in North American creation. But it has become more popular in Ireland in recent years because of our wild celebrations. Right. It's interesting how. How holidays change so much in coming across the ocean and how that even affects how the holidays are practiced in their native land. I think it's really interesting. Let's get back to Halloween mischief. Nowhere in North America did Halloween mischief quite like Detroit, Michigan. From the late 60s to the 1990s, October 30th, the night before Halloween, was Devil's Night in Detroit, and here in Windsor since we're so close. Devil's Night was the time when older kids who couldn't drink but also couldn't trick-or-treat could pull pranks, so they did stuff like egging houses, toilet papering trees, smashing pumpkins, petty things like that. Unfortunately the level of violence increased over the years in Detroit, and the prank of choice for mischief, uh, and I guess to express anger, was arson. The mid-1980s in Detroit were the peak of Devil's Night arsons, but even when I was a kid in the 90s, there were hundreds of fires set throughout Detroit on Devil's Night. It was all you could see on the news the next day was the, the fire count, you know? Windsor had a few incidents of small fires, but most of the Devil's Night revelry here remained petty and rude (laughs) rather than life-threatening. You know, every Devil's Night we would bring our jack-o'-lanterns inside because they were not safe out there. And we would keep an eye on our decorations. You know, anything that was close to the sidewalk or the street, we'd we'd bring in for the night. Uh, We have this old, well, I have it now, this old Devil's, it's a head plastic head of the devil. He, it belonged to my dad when he was a kid. And we'd always make sure that he was front and center that night as I don't know, I guess he was sort of a good luck charm. Like, we support you in your devilish mischief, but please don't wreck our house. <laughs> I still remember when Detroit began the Angels Night program in the mid-90s. So they had thousands and thousands of volunteers, like 40,000 volunteers out on one night carrying walkie-talkies and phones, reporting suspicious activity. They had tons of people uh, volunteer for the fire department, specifically for Angels Nights. The fire department and the police could not handle the number of fires that were set in Detroit every single year. Um, So the number of Devil's Night fires in Detroit went from, oh man, like at one time there was like 800 in a single night. Now it's less than 10. The city also puts money into things like Halloween block parties and events to keep people on the streets uh, and busy and having fun. You know, there's not time to really set fires when there's something more fun going on. (laughs) So the petty crimes version of Devil's Night was popular in other parts of the US and in Canada, but it was often done right on Halloween and often in retaliation for having the porch light off. If you don't want to give out candy on Halloween here in North America, what you do is turn off your porch light and keep your door closed. That lets everybody know that you're not interested in participating. Back in the day, you also had to decorate your house, but that is becoming a little less common these days. Any houses that refused to give out candy with their porch light off were fair game and they got egged or toilet papered or what have you. In retaliation, <laughs> many adults giving out candy refused to produce the goods. <laughs> if those little goblins at the door weren't wearing a costume, you know, no costume, no candy. This was a popular mantra for die hard trick or treat purists. And don't even try to get away with not saying trick or treat at the top of your lungs. Like you got to scream it. I personally will give anyone candy. (laughs) Anyone that's out there that wants candy gets candy. I'm into it. But when I see something like homemade costumes, oh my God, I feel like, you know, the Grinch, my little heart grows three sizes inside that little, that little like measuring device. (laughs) That's me. Um, I remember a particular Halloween a few years back. My neighborhood has had recently become home to a lot of of Muslim and Southeast Asian families who were new to Canada. It was so cool. Uh, So their little ones had never been trick-or-treating before and had just learned about it in school or from their friends or or something. So when I opened the door that night, I didn't actually hear a lot of, you know, trick-or-treats. But what I did see was a bunch of adorable tiny children in homemade costumes trick-or-treating for the very first time. And it was amazing like I'll never forget it these were old school costumes I'm talking you know paper plate masks towels or blankets tied on tied around their neck as superhero capes you know maybe a fancy dress and they used cardboard to make a little princess hat uh, one kid had a dragon mask and he was just wearing all green clothes I gave those kids so much candy just heaps and heaps of candy a lot of those kids were were quiet at first right they're new they're nervous. Um, but eventually you could see these, these cute little kids giggling and running around all over the place. Just like every other kid, kids are the same, <laughs> give them a minute and kids all get excited about things kind of the same way. And all the parents got to meet each other and kind of bond over how cute all their little, you know, monsters and stuff were. I always remember that. Cause that was like, that was the true spirit of Halloween right there. So If you don't hear trick-or-treat at the top of the lungs, if those costumes don't look legit right away, just give it a minute. Everyone who comes to the door is there for the same reason, to celebrate Halloween. So those are the tricks. What about the treats? This is another way Halloween and trick-or-treating has changed and evolved over the years. These days, the treats our revelers receive from their neighbors are mass-produced and pre-wrapped. But this was not always the case. Originally, guising or soling earned you bread, fruit, a nut, whole plate of food if someone was rich, that was the full-size candy bars and can of pop of the day. <laughs> but you got snacks, just natural foods. In the 20th century, many trick-or-treaters received homemade treats like Halloween-shaped cookies and popcorn balls were super popular, Um, caramel and candy apples, and then of course some mass-produced staples like Hershey's chocolate, Mars bars, candy corn, or Kerr's chocolate kisses if you were here in Canada. Those all came out pre-1950 and were already a part of North American snacking. In the 1970s, word began to spread that Halloween treats full of poison, razor blades, and broken glass had been found seemingly in every small town in North America, apparently. Just overnight, this was a thing. And parents began checking candy bags and throwing out, um, like opened or unwrapped treats, if they were commercially made, um but also the homemade ones that the neighbors had made. That is so sad to me to imagine, you know, the first few years when people were still making little ghost-shaped cookies or something and all the kids had to throw them out. It bums me up to think about it. Fortunately, the whole poison candy thing is a wild urban legend, but the switch to mass-produced candy was complete by the time we all learned that. Weirdly, poison candy myths are not actually specific to halloween or to this century this is a super weird trend that began during the industrial revolution it was the beginning of automation and you know people were distrustful of foods and treats and stuff made in factories or especially using cheap sugar alternatives like corn syrup people were very afraid of that at the beginning um And even originally, there was copper and lead (laughs) in industrial kitchens all over the place. Uh, But even with that, candy was never proved to actually be poisoning any large swaths of children or anything like that. But unfortunately, there are scary people everywhere. And there have been a few instances of Halloween candy being tampered with the first instance that we know of is in 1959 a dentist in california who was such a jerk gave out candy-coated laxatives for halloween (laughs) i'm laughing but that's awful that's just so not not a nice thing to do and he was charged he was charged with illegal dispensing of drugs and like reckless behavior in 1964 a halloween humbug gave out inedible junk to kids that she deemed too old to trick-or-treat. She gave out like poison ant traps and steel wool and stuff like that. No one died or got sick because it was very obvious they were not to be eaten. But she did get charged with endangering children because you never know. Interestingly, all the talk about tainted candy actually inspired a lot of kids to act this out. And they would make really messed up looking sewing pin-filled Tootsie Rolls and claimed they received it in their Halloween bags. Kids are really what kept this urban legend going, even more so than terrified parents. Spooky stories about dangerous candy can still be heard on North American playgrounds all the time. That makes me laugh. It's a little bit like, um, well, it's an urban legend, right? It's a little bit like the story of the the hook hanging on the car door, or the call coming from inside the house. (laughs) Canadian trick-or-treaters had their own horrible candy to deal with, and that is Kerr's Halloween Kisses. (laughs) This is a piece of molasses-based toffee that literally just tastes like chewy molasses. (laughs) It's incredibly unpopular with children, but we still sell hundreds and thousands of them every Halloween anyways. 75 years ago, Kerrs began making these kisses right here in Ontario, in St. Thomas to be precise, uh, and the factory that still makes them is in Dunville, Ontario, in the same plant that creates those chewy caramel squares and the pumpkin spice flavoring for Tim Hortons. <laughs> Interesting. So, there are tons of theories as to why this candy, which no one claims to love, sells out pretty much every year, with the main ones being it's very cheap, and it's made semi-locally, which people really like. But I know the truth. The truth is that these Halloween kisses just taste like straight-up nostalgia. every time i bite into one or even just see the colorful orange and black wrappers i'm instantly transported to my childhood kitchen where i'm teasing my mother for enjoying the grossest candy ever of course as soon as i was old enough to buy halloween candy they became the first thing i bought every year and i assure you I eat them. (laughs) I think molasses is tasty, but not in huge quantities, and it's definitely not as sweet and delicious as other popular Halloween treats, even just the caramel. its I like to laugh and say that it's adult-only candy for Halloween, that grown-ups are the only ones who could like it, and that it's a rite of passage. When you start liking the Halloween kisses, you know you've become an adult. (laughs) Uh, this is a candy that it echoes the story of candy corn in the U.S. Um, candy corn is another Halloween treat that was invented in, Hall- in Philadelphia, but uh, is mostly produced these days in Illinois. It's a candy that you torture yourself with every year for the sake of nostalgia and holiday magic, even if you don't like it. Speaking of candy corn, you know when we always bought candy corn? It was Christmas. We didn't eat it because, like, yuck. It's mostly just, like, carnauba wax. Um, (laughs) But my mom told us that candy corn was what gave Santa's reindeer their flying power. (laughs) So we always left a handful of candy corn on a plate for Santa with a special note of encouragement. For the reindeer, tell the reindeer we say thanks. Um, Candy corn is everywhere right now, but I think of it as a Christmas food just because it was part of our personal holiday traditions. The magic that powers my favorite holidays is just nostalgia. <laughs> and sometimes it overpowers everything else. Um, another Halloween treat that I really, really like is uh, candy and caramel coated apples, whole apples. They've got a nice sturdy stick stuck into the center and the apple is dipped in a sugary red candy that sometimes has a cinnamon flavor or in creamy caramel. And then you have to attempt to actually eat the thing whole (laughs) off of a stick, which is terribly unpleasant and very fun to watch. (laughs) The candy apple was first created in Newark, New Jersey in 1908, isn't that wild? And it was actually a way to preserve the apples for a window display, but people loved them and wanted to buy them. And pretty soon, Mr. William Kolb, who had invented them, was dipping thousands of apples every single year. Craft, you know, the brand likes to claim credit for the caramel or the taffy apple in 1950, but it was actually invented in Chicago in 1948 by a Mrs. Edna Kastrup, and her and her family created the Affy Tapple Company. Makes me laugh every time. Um, Who still create them? (laughs) Who still make these apples to this day? Um, you can find them in Niles, Illinois. So they make really fancy caramel apples. Sometimes you can get uh, nuts or chocolate or icing or sprinkles added to to the caramel. Um, really fancy caramel apples have gotten common in recent years. You can sometimes find them right next to like the wine or the <laughs> or the the uh, alcoholic apple cider. Actually, that's another thing I learned. Non-alcoholic apple cider doesn't really exist much in the British Isles. That is another North American thing. Interesting, right? Um, But some fancy ones I've got are even pre-cut. So they're a lot easier to eat. I dig that. What I find around here, and I don't know how common it is, is a caramel apple pie for sale in the fall. And it is just the best. It is literally just an apple pie with caramel added into the, the, the apples and it's so delicious and it's a lot easier to eat than (laughs) an entire caramel apple off of a stick. Not everyone loves or even understands the magic of trick-or-treating. Naturally, the implied threat rubs some folk the wrong way. Others disagree on health grounds. You know, kids of dentists, they really have it rough this time of year. Some people take a religious stance against Halloween, even the fairly secular activity activity of trick-or-treating. Though he certainly features in many of our American folk tales, some taking place around Halloween, most of this day's historical roots have little to do with the devil at all, and it certainly doesn't encourage becoming actual demons and ghosts. The costumes, for many, were a way of scaring off or appeasing unruly spirits. Even a way to blend in, to keep you safe on a night when the veil between the living and the dead is the thinnest and there are creatures about. For kids, Halloween wasn't about any of that, of course. It was about good old-fashioned, creative and active fun. One night a year, you could try on different identities, and those with kids can agree that kids do so much more than just putting on the costume. Just like with guising and souling, they, they try on the voice, they create mannerisms, they growl and they grunt and they create vivid backstories. You know, some, some spend weeks studying the movie or book or story that their costume is based on so that they can create the perfect look or develop the perfect performance. And what's even cooler is I think Halloween is a unifier with a lot of kids. You know, it puts all the kids in the neighborhood on equal footing and even brings kids who normally wouldn't be caught dead together into the same adventure. It's a very magical, liminal time between the seasons, between being young and old and even between, you know, public and secret because a lot of those kids are completely covered and you have no idea who they are. My favorite Halloween story of all time happens to feature eight little trick-or-treaters on a very epic adventure. It's maybe a bit beyond their age and teaches them about death, ghosts, saying goodbye, and the origins of all of their favorite Halloween traditions. The Halloween Tree by Ray Bradbury, and its made-for-TV Hanna-Barbera Halloween special, is really what made me fall in love with Halloween just beyond my own backyard and into the wide world. You know, it made me fall in love with the history and the mythology that created our ancient and our modern traditions surrounding death, life, and facing our own very human fears with the help of somewhat inhuman uh, characters and stories. I got myself a brand new, actually it's an illustrated copy of the Halloween tree this year. So I have decided to read some aloud to you guys today, to get you in the trick-or-treating spirit. It was a small town by a small river and a small lake in a small northern part of a Midwest state. There wasn't so much wilderness around you couldn't see the town, but on the other hand, there wasn't so much town around that you couldn't see and feel and touch and smell the wilderness. The town was full of trees, and dry grass, and dead flowers now that autumn was here, and full of fences to walk on, and sidewalks to skate on, and a large ravine to tumble in and yell across, and the town was full of boys, it was the afternoon of Halloween, and all the houses shut against a cool wind, and the town full of cold sunlight, but suddenly the day was gone. Behind the doors of all the houses, there was a scurry of mouse feet, muted cries, flickerings of light. Behind one door, Tom Skelton, aged thirteen, stopped and listened. The wind outside nested in each tree, prowled the sidewalks in invisible treads like unseen cats. Tom Skelton shivered. Anyone could see that the wind was a special wind this night, and the darkness took on a special feel because it was all Hallow's Eve. Everything seemed cut from soft black velvet or gold or orange velvet. Smoke panted up out of thousand chimneys like plumes of funeral parades. From kitchen windows drifted two pumpkin smells gourds being cut, pies being baked. The cries behind the locked house doors grew more exasperated as shadows of boys flew by windows. Half dressed boys, grease paint on their cheeks, here a hunchback, there a medium sized giant. Attics were still being rummaged, old locks broken, old steamer chests disemboweled for costumes. Tom Skelton put on his bones. He grinned at the spinal cord, the rib cage, the kneecaps, stitched white on black cotton. Lucky, he thought, what a name you got, Tom Skelton, great for Halloween, everyone calls you Skeleton, so what do you wear? Bones. Wham! Eight front doors banging shut. Eight boys made a series of beautiful leaps over flowerpots, rails, dead ferns, bushes, landing on their own dry starched front lawns. Galloping, rushing, they seized a final sheet, adjusted a last mask, tugged at strange mushroom caps or wigs, shouting at the way the wind took them along. Helped their running. glad of the wind, or cursing boy curses as masks fell off or hung sideways or stuffed up their noses with a muslin smell like a dog's hot breath, or just letting the sheer exhilaration of being alive and out on this night pull their lungs and shape their throats into a yell and a yell and a yell. Eight boys collided at one intersection. Here I am, witch, ape man, skeleton, said Tom, hilarious inside his bones. Gargoyle, Beggar. Mr. Death himself. Bang. They shook back from their concussions, all fouled and tangled under a street corner light. Their swaying electric lamp belled in the wind like a cathedral bell. The bricks of the street became planks of a drunken ship, all tilted and foundered with dark and light. Behind each mask was a boy. Who's that? Tom Skelton pointed. Won't tell. It's a secret, cried the witch, disguising his voice. Everyone laughed. Who's that? "'Mummy!' cried the boy inside the ancient yellow wrappings like an immense cigar stalking the night streets, and who's—'No time!' said someone hidden behind yet another mystery of muslin and paint. Trick or treat Yeah!' Shrieking, wailing, full of banshee mirth they ran on everything except sidewalks, going up into the air over bushes and down almost upon yipping dogs, but in the middle of running, laughing, barking, suddenly—' as if a great hand of night and wind and smelling something wrong stopped them. Six, seven, eight, that can't be, count again, four, five, six, there should be nine of us, someone's missing. They sniffed each other like fearful beasts. Pipkin's not here. How did they know? They were all hidden behind masks, and yet, and yet, they could feel his absence. Pipkin, he's never missed a Halloween in a zillion years. Boy, this is awful. Come on. In one vast swerve, one dog-like trot and ramble, they circled round and down the middle of the cobble-brick street, blown like leaves before a storm. Here's his place. They pulled to a halt. There was Pipkin's house, but not enough pumpkins in the windows, not enough corn shocks on the porch, not enough spooks peering out through the dark glass in the high upstairs tower room. "'Gosh,' said someone, "'what if Pipkin's sick?' "'It wouldn't be Halloween without Pipkin.' "'Not Halloween,' they all moaned. "'And someone threw a crab apple at Pipkin's front door. "'It made a small thump, like a rabbit kicking the wood. "'They waited, sad for no reason, lost for no reason. "'They thought of Pipkin and a Halloween that might be a rotten pumpkin with a dead candle if, "'if Pipkin wasn't there. "'Come on, Pipkin, come out and save the night.' Why were they waiting? Afraid for one small boy? Because Joe Pipkin was the greatest boy who ever lived. The grandest boy who ever fell out of a tree and laughed at the joke. The finest boy who ever raced around the track winning and then seeing his friends a mile back somewhere, stumbled and fell, waited for them to catch up, and joined breast to breast, breaking the winner's tape. The jolliest boy who ever hunted out all the haunted houses in town, which are hard to find, and came back to report on them and take all the kids to ramble through the basements and scramble up the ivy outside bricks and shout down the chimneys and make water off the roofs hooting and chimpanzee dancing and ape bellowing. The day Joe Pipkin was born, all the orange crush and nahi soda bottles in the world fizzed over, and joyful bees swarmed countrysides to sting maiden ladies. On his birthdays, the lake pulled out from the shore in midsummer, and ran back with a tidal wave of boys, a big leap of bodies, and a down crash of laughs. Dawn's lying in bed. You heard a bird peck at the window, Pipkin. You stuck your head out into the snow water, clear summer morning air. There in the dew on the lawn rabbit, Prince showed where just a moment ago, not a dozen rabbits, but one rabbit had circled and crisscrossed in a glory of life and exultation, bounding hedges, clipping ferns, tromping clover. It resembled the switchyards down at the rail depot. A million tracks in the grass, but no pipkin. And here he rose up like a wild sunflower in the garden. His great round face burned with fresh sun. His eyes flashed Morse code signals. Hurry up. It's almost over. What? Today. Now. 6 a.m. Dive down. Well, Let's wait in it. Or this summer. Before you know it, bang, it's gone real quick. And he sank away in sunflowers to come up all onions. Pipkin, oh dear Pipkin, finest and loveliest of boys, how he ran so fast no one knew. His tennis shoes were ancient. They were colored green of forest jogged through, brown from old harvest trudges through a September year back, tar stained from sprints along the docks and beaches where the coal barges came in, yellow from careless dogs, splinter filled from cramming wood fences. His clothes were scarecrow clothes worn by Pipkins dogs all night, loaned to them for strolls through town, which two marks along the cuffs and fall marks on the seat. his hair his hair was a great hedgehog bristle of bright brown blond daggers sticking in all directions, his ears pure peach fuzz, his hands mittened with dust and the good smell of airales and peppermint and stolen peaches from the far country orchards. Pipkin, an assemblage of speeds, smells, textures, a cross-section of all the boys who ever ran, fell, got up, and ran again. No one, in all the years, had ever seen him sitting still. He was hard to remember in school, in one seat, for one hour. He was the last into the schoolhouse, and the first exploded out when the bell ended the day. Pipkin, sweet Pipkin, who yodeled and played the kazoo, and hated girls more than all the other boys in the gang combined, "'Pipkin, whose arm around your shoulder "'and secret whisper of great doings this day "'protected you from the world. "'Pipkin, God got up early "'just to see Pipkin come out of the house "'like one of those people on a weather clock, "'and the weather was always fine where Pipkin was. "'He stood in front of his house. "'Any moment now that door would open wide. "'Pipkin would jump out in a blast of fire and smoke "'and Halloween would really begin. "'Come on, Joe, oh, Pipkin,' they whispered, "'come on!' The front door opened pipkin stepped out not flew not banged not exploded stepped out and came down the walk to meet his friends not running not wearing a mask no mask but moving along like an old man almost pipkin they shouted to scare away their uneasiness hi gang said pipkin his face was pale he tried to smile but his eyes looked funny He was holding his right side with one hand as if he had a boil there they all looked at his hand he took his hand away from his side well he said with faint enthusiasm we ready to go yeah but you don't look ready said tom are you sick on halloween said pipkin are you kidding where's your costume you go ahead i'll catch up no pipkin we'll wait for you to go on said pipkin saying it slowly his face deathly pale now his hand was back at his side you got a stomach ache asked tom have you told your folks no no i can't they would tears burst from pipkin's eyes it's nothing i tell you look go straight on toward the ravine head for the house okay the place of the haunts yeah meet you there you swear i swear wait till you see my costume the boys began to back off On the way, they touched his elbow or knocked him gently in the chest or ran their knuckles along his chin in a fake fight. Okay, Pipkin, as long as you're sure, I'm sure. He took his hand away from his side, his face colored for a moment as if the pain were gone. On your marks, get set, go. When Joe Pipkin said go, they went. They ran. They ran backward halfway down the block so they could see Pipkin standing there waving at them. Hurry up, Pipkin! I'll catch you, he shouted, a long way off. The night swallowed him. They ran. When they looked back again, he was gone. They banged doors, they shouted trick-or-treat, and their brown paper bags began to fill with incredible sweets. They galloped with their teeth glued shut with pink gum. They ran with red wax lips, bedazzling their faces. But all the people who met them at doors looked like candy factory duplicates of their own mothers and fathers. It was like never leaving home. Too much kindness flashed from every window and every portal. What they wanted was to hear dragons belch in basements and banged castle doors. And so, still looking back for Pipkin, they reached the edge of town and the place where civilization fell away in darkness. The ravine. The ravine, filled with varieties of night sounds, lurkings of black ink, steam, and creek, lingerings of autumns that rolled over in fire and bronze and died a thousand years ago. From this deep place sprang a mushroom and a toadstool and cold stone frog and crawdad and spider. There was a long tunnel down there under the earth in which poisoned waters dripped and the echoes never ceased calling, Come, come, come. And if you do, you'll stay forever, forever. grip, forever. Rustle, run, rush, whisper. And never go, never go the boys lined up on the rim of darkness looking down and then tom skelton cold in his bones whistled his breath in his teeth like the wind blowing over the bedroom screen at night he pointed oh hey that's where pipkin told us to go he vanished they all looked they saw his small shape race toward the dirt path into 100 million tons of night all crammed into that huge dark pit that dank cellar that deliciously frightening ravine. Yelling, they plunged after. Where they had been was empty. The town was left behind to suffer itself with sweetness. They ran down through the ravine at a swift rush, all laughing, jostling, all elbows and ankles, all steamy snort and roust about, to stop in collision when Tom Skelton stopped and pointed up the path. There, he whispered, there's the only house in town worth visiting on Halloween, right there. "'Yeah!' said everyone, for it was true. The house was special and fine, and tall and dark. There must have been a thousand windows in its side, all shimmering with cold stars. It looked as if it had been cut out of black marble instead of built out of timbers, and inside, who could guess how many rooms, halls, breezeways, attics? Superior and inferior attics, some higher than others, some more filled with dust and webs and ancient leaves or gold buried above ground in the sky but lost away so high no ladder in town could take you there. The house beckoned with its towers, invited with its gum-shut doors. Pirate ships are a tonic, ancient forts are a boom. But a house, a haunted house, on All Hallows' Eve? Eight small hearts beat up an absolute storm of glory and approbation. Come on! but they were already crowding up the path, until they stood at last by a crumbling wall, looking up and up and still farther up at the great tomb yard top of the house. That's what it seemed. The high mountain peak of the mansion was littered with what looked like black bones or iron rods, and enough chimneys to choke out smoke signals from three dozen fires on sooty hearths, hidden far below in the dim bowels of this monster place. With so many chimneys the roof seemed a vast cemetery, each chimney signifying the burial place of some old god of fire or enchantress of steam, smoke, and firefly spark. Even as they watched, a kind of bleak exultation of soot breathed up out of some four dozen flutes, darkening the sky still more and putting out some few stars. Boy, said Tom Skelton, Pipkin sure knows what he's talking about. Boy, said all agreeing. They crept along a weed-infested path toward a crumpled front porch. Tom Skelton, alone, itched his bony foot up on the first porch step. The others gasped at his bravery. So now, finally in a mob, a compact mass of sweating boys moved up the porch amid fierce cries of the planks underfoot and shudderings of their bodies. Each wished to pull back, to swivel about, to run, but found himself trapped against the boy behind him or in front of him or to the side. So, with a pseudopod thrust out here or there, the amoebic form, the large perspiration of boys, leaned and made a run and a stop at the front door of the house, which was as tall as a coffin and twice as thin. They stood there for a long moment, various hands reaching out like the legs of an immense spider, as if to twist that cold knob or reach up for the knocker on that front door. Meanwhile, the wooden floorings of the porch sank and wallowed beneath their weight, threatening at every shift of proportion to give away and fling them into some cockroach abyss beneath. The planks, each tuned to an A or an F or a C, sang out their uncanny music as heavy shoes scraped on them. And if there had been time and it were noon, they might have danced out a cadaver's tune or a skeleton's rigadoon, for who can resist an ancient porch which, like a gigantic xylophone, only wants to be jumped on to make music? but they were not thinking this. Henry Hank Smith, for that's who it was, hidden behind his black witch's costume, cried, look, and all looked at the knocker on the door. Tom's hand trembled out to touch it. It's a Marley knocker. What? You know, Scrooge and Marley, a Christmas carol, whispered Tom. And indeed the face that made up the knocker on the door was the face of a man with a dead toothache. His jaw bandaged, his hair askew, his teeth prolapsed, his eyes wild. "'Dead as a door-nail Marley, friend to Scrooge, inhabitor of lands beyond the grave, "'doomed to wander this earth forever until—' "'Knock!' said Henry Hank. "'Tom Skelton took hold of old Marley's cold and grisly jaw, "'lifted it and let it fall. "'All jumped at the concussion. "'The entire house shook, its bones ground together, "'shades snap furled up so that windows blinked wide "'their ghastly eyes.' Tom Skelton cat leapt onto the porch rail, staring up. On the rooftop, weird weathercock spun. Two-headed roosters whirled in the sneezed wind. A gargoyle on the western rim of the house erupted, twin snorts of rain funneled dust. And down the long-snaking serpentine rain spouts of the house, after the sneeze had died and the weathercock ceased spinning, vagrant wisps of autumn leaf and cobweb fell gusting out onto the dark grass. Tom whirled to look at the faintly shuddering windows. Moonlit reflections trembled in the glass like schools of disturbed silver minnows. Then the front door gave a shake, a twist of its knob, a grimace of its marley knocker, and flung itself wide. The wind made by the suddenly opening door almost knocked the boys off the porch. They seized one another's elbows, yelling. Then the darkness within the house inhaled. A wind sucked through the gaping door. It pulled at the boys, dragging them across the porch. They had to lean back so as not to be snatched into the deep, dark hall. They struggled, shouted, clutched the porch rails. But then the wind ceased. Darkness moved within darkness. Inside the house, a long way off, someone was walking toward the door. Whoever it was must have been dressed all in black, for they could see nothing but a pale white face drifting on the air. An evil smile came and hung in the doorway before them. Behind the smile, the tall man hid in shadow. They could see his eyes now, small pinpoints of green fire and little charred pits of sockets looking out at them. Well, said Tom, "Uh, trick or treat? Trick, said the smile in the dark. Treat? "Uh, Yes, sir. The wind played a flute in the chimney somewhere. "'an old song about time and dark and far-off places.' "'The tall man shut up his smile like a bright pocket-knife. "'No treats,' he said, "'only tricks,' and the door slammed. "'The house thundered with showers of dust. "'Dust puffed out the rain-spout again in fluffs "'like an emergence of downy cats. "'Dust gasped from open windows. "'Dust snorted from the porch-boards under their feet. "'The boys stared at the locked, shut-fast door.' The marley knocker was not scowling now, but smiling an evil smile. "'What's he mean?' asked Tom. "'No treats. Only trick.' Backing off around the side of the house, they were astonished at the sounds it made. A whole rigmarole of whispers, squeaks, creaks, wails, and murmurs, and the night wind was careful to let the boys hear them all. With every step they took, the great house leaned after them with soft groans, They rounded the far side of the house and stopped, for there was the tree, and it was such a tree as they had never seen in all their lives. It stood in the middle of a vast yard behind the terribly strange house, and this tree rose up some one hundred feet in the air, taller than the high roofs, and full and round and well-branched and covered all over with rich assortments of red and brown and yellow autumn leaves but whispered tom oh look what's up in that tree for the tree was hung with a variety of pumpkins of every shape and size and a number of tints and hues of smoky yellow or bright orange a pumpkin tree someone said no said tom the wind blew among the high branches and tossed their bright burden softly a halloween tree said tom And he was right. Mm. So those are the first few chapters of The Halloween Tree by Ray Bradbury. One of my favorite authors, especially around Halloween time, (laughs) he also wrote uh, Something Wicked This Way Comes about a scary carnival and the movie featured Pam Greer, which was lovely, Uh, and October Country, which you guys might also enjoy this time of year. Uh, The illustrated version I got is illustrations by Grizz Grimley. It's very cute. Very cute. So that is my favorite Halloween story. Um, And those boys do end up trick-or-treating. They just, they don't stay in town. And they don't stay in their own time either. (laughs) They learn quite a bit. Uh, Maybe I will read more of the story in some of our future Halloween episodes. But for now, I must bid you all a wonderful good night. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Fat Feminist Witch Podcast for this lovely episode on Halloween and trick-or-treating. I hope you guys all enjoy your spooky season. And don't worry, this is not the last Halloween episode of the year. I'm working on something very, very special to come out a few days before Halloween about a different facet of Halloween lore and entertainment that... I think many of you probably really enjoy. So tune in for that. In the meantime, I hope you have a fantastic spooky season, a wonderful weekend. I hope I hope you enjoy, you know, like I am, some nice warm tea <laughs> on a maybe chilly day, thinking of ghost stories and smelling the dead leaves. It's a beautiful time of year, and I hope you guys really get to enjoy it. If you want to find out more about me or the Fat Feminist Witch podcast, you can check out my website at thefatfeministwitch.com. You can also read my books Green Witchcraft, The Grimoire Journal, and my newest book, Witchcraft for Emotional Wisdom, are all out anywhere that you buy your favorite witchy books. Green Witchcraft is about exploring the natural world through magic. The Grimoire Journal is a workbook to help you create your own spells and rituals, and Witchcraft for Emotional Wisdom is kind of a personal book about uh, healing from emotional pain and trauma and, you know, helping yourself be a little bit more happy through the use of magic. So you can find all of those and if you go to my website, you can find links to get them uh, in both Canada and the US. Want to buy some Fat Feminist Witch swag? You can do that at my Public store, which you can find the link for in the description to this podcast. I've got great t-shirts and tote bags and even small things like pillows and notebooks with Fat Feminist Witch artwork and logo, as well as new designs that I'm coming up with all the time. Most recently, I made some very fun fall and Halloween designs specifically for all of you fellow Halloween witches out there. For all of the book-loving witches out there, check out my Patreon, patreon.com slash the Fat Feminist Witch, where you can join our monthly book club. We get together every month and read new witchy books that are coming out with live meetups, um, fun discussions about the topics in the book, and even some you know, spells and rituals that we all do together. You can find all of these links to find me in the description of the show or on my website.